And finally, from the letter to the Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable gift than did Cain. By faith, Noah, warned by God of events unseen, built an ark to save his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a new place, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Moses was hidden by his parents, grew up to leave Egypt, unafraid of Pharaoh's anger. By faith, he kept the Passover, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. And what more should I say? There isn't enough time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, so many of them, who through faith enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched raging fires, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty and put armies to flight. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every distraction and every sin which clings to us, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Some years ago, as part of one of our services, I read a litany that was modeled after Hebrews 11, which is from the Christian Testament, a litany telling the history of Unitarian Universalism through the names of some of our particular saints. I have been hunting for that reading. I have hunted for it several times without success, even with the help of the Internet, which tells me it no longer exists except perhaps somewhere in a pile of papers that one day my unfortunate heirs may or may not sort through. Since I couldn't find the thing, I obviously cannot read it to you. I can't even remember who wrote it or what the occasion was, but it was the basic formula that you find in Hebrews chapter 11, something along the lines of, by faith did Michael Servetus challenge John Calvin. By faith did King John of Transylvania proclaim religious tolerance. By faith did George de Benville carry the good news of universal salvation to the people of Europe. By faith did John Murray preach at Thomas Potter's Chapel. By faith did Susan B. Anthony lead the cause of women's rights and on up into the mid-20th century, ending in the 1960s with... By faith did James Reeb go to Selma and give up his life in the struggle for equality. Now that UU litany of historical characters was every bit as long as the one that the anonymous author of the letter to the Hebrews had offered some 1900 years earlier. I gave you only the highlights. If you want the whole thing, it is Hebrews chapter 11 go hunting. And of course, the two pieces are based on somewhat different theological premises, but they're not bad companion pieces, and I do wish I could have found the UU litany. It would have been very useful. First, it affirms that even for us Unitarian Universalists, who still cannot agree on precisely what our faith is, still what motivates us at our best is not self-interest, not simple pragmatism, not adherence to politically correct slogans or fear of those who tell us what to believe or who are different from us, 
what motivated our religious forebears and what we hope ultimately motivates us is indeed faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We are guided by faith. Faith that the things we hope for are indeed possible and certainly worth working to bring about, that the unseen is not necessarily, therefore, the unreal. And this is our present faith reality embodied in our living community in the ways in which we have chosen to gather, to live, to be. And second, both of the litanies conclude with the joyous affirmation that we are indeed surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. For the writer of Hebrews, that was the ever-living-in-heaven God-guided saints. For us, in our somewhat more humanistic model, it is the living memories of those who have gone before us, those ordinary women and men doing extraordinary things showing what seems to observers to be an amazing courage, compassion, wisdom, stubbornness, and proving to us thereby that we too are capable of running the race that is before us. That cloud of witnesses is the community existing across time that helps give us our roots. It's our inherited tradition. And even those parts of it that we no longer take with the degree of seriousness our religious ancestors did, issues like the importance of the, the shared cup at communion for Jan Hus, or the inappropriateness of praying through Jesus rather than going directly to God for Ferenc David in Transylvania, even though our theological and philosophical and practical focuses today are very different, Still, we are rooted in those examples of long-ago-ended lives. Our spiritual ancestors lived their lives by faith. So do we. They held to their faith, supported and encouraged by the actions, the teachings, the courage, the lived faith of those who had preceded them and those who ran along beside them. So do we. They had their own roots, their own wings. We have inherited their stories as part of our roots, and our ongoing task is to live into our own faith, to discover our own wings, and then commit ourselves to living as our faith demands of us today. And so, with that introductory material out of the way, tell me, who showed up on your doorsteps on Halloween? Remember Halloween? It was not all that long ago. <laughs> Did any of you have folks show up on your doorsteps? So who showed up? <coughs> who? Zombies? <laughs> Scarier than we got. Anything else? Princesses. Princesses. Oh, lots of princesses. A bumblebee. Yeah. A bumblebee. We had thing one and thing two which I remember with great fondness because my mother did that to my brother and sister and me. I was the cat in the hat being the oldest. <laughs> but really nothing all that horribly scary. A, a pirate whose outfit would never have survived one really good storm at sea, but basically nobody I was worried about. And when they all left after 7 o'clock when trick-or-treating officially ended in Wheaton, that part of the evening ended and we went to our own household rituals. 
We celebrate Samhain, and the ghoulish little Halloween trick-or-treaters are welcomed as part of that welcoming and honoring of our beloved dead, who, it is said, come to visit their living descendants and loved ones to be reassured that all is well and the gifts of their lives are not forgotten. And the only scary thing about Halloween for us this year was how close it was to Tuesday's election. (laughs) And I, for one, will be ever so grateful when the election is over. Now, it has been a somewhat quieter election season than others for me as a minister. There haven't been nearly as many emails with horrible messages, although I did get a couple of cut-and-paste Bible passages addressed directly to me, proving in great detail that because they were sure I support the wrong candidate, I was going to burn in hell eternally. (laughs) So I burned the letter, figuring I'd send it on to my future address and pick it up some other time. And there were the addicting websites, and I thank those of you who respected my request to keep my computer a Palin-free zone. It was somebody else who sent me the leak to Palin as president. And I, I have to say, I am ashamed of myself. I have, I've checked it just about every day to see what harmless little beast gets shot in the closet this time. And it, that, that website is wrong in so many, many ways. But the best thing that came in the mail this year was a big package from the Judeo-Christian View. And they didn't have my name, so they didn't know me. The others come addressed specifically. But it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It came with not one, but two DVDs. Uh, One on the Judeo-Christian view, warning us uh, in two versions, the mild version, suitable for all audiences, and the graphic version, adult discernment required. Explaining how, as one votes, one needs to remember the biblical stands on child sacrifice and abominations. Fortunately, they say only one of the candidates supports them both. (laughs) That same candidate also, uh, they want to warn us against because of the radical Islamic war against the West, which is going to be fomented by the wrong candidate. But pastor, we're not telling you how to vote. And pastor, we're not telling you how to tell your flock to vote. But pastor, read your Bible, and then we know you'll make the right decision. And uh, right on the surface, pastor, if you don't, you're going to hell. I figure all my friends are going to be there. It's going to be great. (laughs) Those, Those good people are very sure whom the faithful should be voting for. I think they should vote for the Antichrist myself because I know who they think that that is, and that would be my candidate. So um, I know who the faithful should vote for too, but from a somewhat different perspective. I'm sorry, did I say that in my out loud voice? I am not telling you for whom to vote. I have heard from others, and I've joked myself about the possibility of moving to Canada. Toronto is a lovely city, maybe Halifax, even St. John's, any place far away from Alaska anyway, (laughs) if the election does not go as I personally am hoping that it will. And one does have to wonder, of course, just how many disappointed voters Canada would be willing to hold. (laughs) And I may indeed be tempted to flee if things on Tuesday do not go as I hope 
and pray and personally will vote to encourage. But even if I find that I'm on the losing side politically this time round, running away is not an option. And it's not an option for any of you either. Not if the faith that we claim we possess, the faith that I will acknowledge anyway, claims me. Not if that faith means anything at all. Our friends from the Judeo-Christian View Group do have one thing right, which is that every secular election does call upon us to examine not our personal convenience, not our private preferences, not our idiosyncratic biases, nor our worries or our dreams of power or of vengeance against the unrighteous, but rather our own deepest faith, those values and meanings, commitments and hopes that ground our lives. So I would invite you to be thinking about a couple of questions. First, why do faith communities like this one exist? Why have they existed in their various historical forms and incarnations for so long? We do have a traceable history of at least four centuries and a history of influence going back to the days of the first Christians, to the Greek and Roman republics, to the ancient Israelites. What is it that has been embedded in the religious story that is our story for so long? What is the purpose, the good news, the gospel, if you will, the witness, the faith, that has carried our ways of being religious through the flows of time? And what is the purpose, the message of our faith for these times? What is it that we honor and celebrate and offer no matter what? Over the years, I have tried any number of times to summarize the basics of our liberal religious faith, the the things that distinguish today's Unitarian Universalism from liberal Christianity or liberal Judaism or ethical culture or great books or a social club or a circled wagon train. Last weekend, we heard from our ninth graders in their coming-of-age program how they would explain their faith as young Unitarian Universalists And their adult mentors also faced and met that challenge of summarizing their understandings of their UU faith as well. Those different descriptions had themes in common and they had their own individual flair. None would be universally accepted as a final definition of Unitarian Universalism and none were intended to be such a thing either. They were all articulate snapshots of where 14 men and women and youth were, spiritually and religiously, when they wrote their brief statements of faith. And there are, after all, as many ways of describing our religious center as there are individual Unitarian Universalists, in part because respect for the individual is a core value for us. Now, it's a challenging value. When do we put the interests of the many ahead of the needs of the few or the one, or the needs of the one or few ahead of the desires or the interests or the needs of the many? We can and we do argue a lot about that. But the respect, the valuing of each individual's perspective is also an important reminder of how essential to us is the embodied, incarnate nature of our faith 
not in a mystical, mysterious way, except insofar as all of life really is a glorious mystery, but in practical, day-to-day, average, and everyday life. For us, theology and biography are closely tied. We are best able to explain ourselves not by making philosophical or theological pronouncements, but by telling stories, our own and also the stories of the men and women whose lives And words, yes, but words brought alive by their lives, whose lives embody the values that we, too, would claim. They were not perfect, any of them, far from it. Even our beloved Augustus Conant, the minister who helped found this congregation back in 1842, he was what one could only charitably describe as a real prig, a wet blanket and a killjoy. He would not have approved of our parties, And he would have trouble with a woman in the pulpit. But we revere him for his courage, for his integrity. When he gave his life during the war between the states, he died of battle fever because as a chaplain, he was also a medic. And he was on the field at the Battle of Murfreesboro in the most horrible weather of that winter, ministering, caring for the soldiers of both sides. We have no half-human, half-divine, somehow fully both beings to set up unrealistic expectations for us, which is why so many of our forebears insisted that Jesus of Nazareth, to be of any real help to the rest of us humans at all, had to be himself simply and fully human with no extra surprise tricks to draw on. Our saints must be human, fallible, quirky, often difficult and determined, determined to live out the consequences of their faith in a loving God, a free mind, a morally responsive and responsible humanity. So what are the lessons that come to us through the lives of our ancestors? I don't have time to go through an entire litany, so I've condensed the essentials down for now to just three. Three characteristics, three values, three attitudes that I think make our faith unique and give it a message of power and hope that does not lose its significance over time. Ours is a faith distinct from all others in the breadth of freedom we claim as our right as religious people. Freedom not to do whatever we want, nor to believe whatever we want, but rather the harder freedom that demands that we do and we believe what we must, based upon the discoveries and the demands of our own conscience and reason, the demands of compassion and justice, the legitimate needs of the many and the legitimate needs of each individual one. We expect... We require the freedom to think, to question, to explore all areas of human life. We do not have the privilege of spiritual laziness. No one else can do your religious searching for you. No one can tell you what you ought to believe. Each of us can and each of us must do that on our own behalf. 
Second, ours is a faith distinct from all others in the degree of respect that we do, at our best, hold for all others. Remembering that if our freedom is sacred, so too is theirs. If we must follow the demands of our consciences, so too must they follow theirs. If we expect to be treated with reason and compassion and respect, so too must we treat all others. It's that pesky inherent worth and dignity thing that some of you may remember, which does not say that we have to unquestioningly accept any stupid or harmful or vicious belief or action that someone else wants to express or support, but it does mean that we may not demonize, objectify, dehumanize any other human being. And we're not always real good at this one. And I am as guilty as anyone else of confusing persons with their ideas, sinners with the sins, if you will, and therefore not seeing the person but only the idea or my possibly erroneous interpretation of it, seeing only the action that I recognize according to my own beliefs and experiences and conscience and reason and faith to be absolutely positively wrong. Respect requires that I remember that I too could be wrong. And even if I'm right, that cannot diminish the respect for the other because ours is a faith distinct from all others in its degree of ultimate trust. Ultimate trust that right relations are possible. Ultimate trust in the powers of human goodness, of active love, of compassionate justice, of responsible mercy. An ultimate trust in humankind at its best, in spite of the masses of contradictory evidence to which others and we ourselves may point. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen, but not therefore impossible. Because if we can imagine them, if we can dream them, want them, work for them, then those values we live are embodied, are incarnated, made real in this world. Our modern observance of Samhain is a time of reflection and remembering, welcoming the spirits of our beloved dead who come across the divide to visit us. It is a time when the ancestors are welcomed with love and respect. It's a time when we open our hearts and our spirits and our minds to, to the teachings, the lessons, the examples given us by those who preceded us, forebears of whose lives and sacrifices we would be worthy. And it's a time to remind ourselves that we, too, are ancestors. We are the ancestors of the generations who follow us, some of them sharing the earth with us already, but far more still to come. And we owe it to them to be ourselves exemplars worthy of appreciation and honor and respect. Ours is a living, lived, growing, changing faith honoring our history, cherishing the lessons of the ability of individual people to work, sometimes alone, but more often together, to change and to heal the world. 
And it is important to remember that for these ancestors of ours, faith was intimately interwoven with the human exercise of freedom, reason, respect, and trust. And the faith that they lived out in their own lives was a deeply humanistic faith and a deeply mystical one as well, founded upon their sense of gratitude and joy for life's gifts, for the utter beauty of the heart of being, the mysteries of the heavens, their connection to the pure compassion of the ever-breaking, ever-healing heart of God. And therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every encumbrance, every burden, everything which would hold us back, and let us run the race that is set before us with faith and with courage and with joy.